Hello everyone, it's Kimberly here from Casey Consultancy. I am really excited to be here this morning doing a Q&A for you. So, it's cold and it's rainy outside and it's not the perfect condition really to be going to an outdoor concert, which I'm heading to shortly. Um, so wish me luck with that. Um, we're off to see Ed Sheeran in Leeds this afternoon, which I'm so excited about. When we booked tickets a whole year ago, I sort of had this image in my head of today and uh, sitting on the grass, drinking pins, singing along to the good music. But yeah, I think we're going to be in our wellies and waterproofs and probably swapping our pins for hot chocolate or whiskey. <laughs> so yeah, very different um, image today of, of what I had in my mind previously. So we'll see, we'll see how we get on. I'm really excited though about seeing Ed. For me, some of Ed's music reminds me of a time in my life when everything started to change. So um, we were on holiday a few years ago in California. And um, for those of you that, that know California at all, we were in Santa Barbara and we'd gone up into the beautiful wine region of Los Olivos in the Santa Barbara Hills. We'd um, done some wine tasting, we'd been to a gorgeous local deli and got some great picnic food. And then we headed to this castle, um, well the ruins of a castle actually, Hearst's Castle. And it's perched right on the top of a hill overlooking this beautiful valley. And then you've got the coast all around you. Um, this is so irrelevant but I'm going into it anyway. And it was at that point that I realised that everything needed to change, that I was going to start up being a consultant on my own. And it was just one of those really wonderful moments. And I felt really excited at the thought of it. And then we jumped in the car and when we got in the car and we popped the radio on, and we're driving down the windy mountain roads, you know, gorgeous scenery in the background, the sea at the other side. Um, Ed Sheeran's Castle on the Hill started playing on the radio. And I was like, oh, this is like so meant to be. And yeah, for me now, every time I hear that song, it just fills me with like that, oh, I'm excited and, um, you know, that was a really special moment for me. So that song gives me all the feels. So I hope he sings it today. It'll be just my look. You know, when you have a song and you go to a concert and they just don't play it and you're like, what's going on? This is like the best song ever and you've not played it. So Ed, if you're listening, I would really, really love you to play Castle on the Hill. That would be fabulous. Okay, so I think that me chattering away about that leads in quite nicely to some of the questions that have come in today about what inspired me, what motivates me, and how did I become a consultant? So those questions have come in from Early Years Amy, Love Play Sparkle, and Mr. Fox, um, primary teacher I think he's called. Oh, and Sam, my lovely ambassador Sam at Goldsworthy Childminder. So I'm going to group all of those questions together and yeah, try and answer them. But it comes with a little bit of a warning because I feel like I'm going to go into my life story now and that might be pretty dull. So if you're watching this back as a replay, do just like whiz the video on because I will get on 
and answer some of the other questions about creating a hygge environment in year two, um, what plants are safe to have in your classroom, how to inspire your team and how to achieve a work-life balance um, along with daily planning. So do bear with me. So how did I get into early years? Well, I always feel that what you go through in life, it shapes you and the people that you meet are part of that. And for me, when I started in reception at school, um, back in the early 90s, I think it was 91, um, I had never been to a preschool before or a nursery setting. I was like brand new into the education system. And I was quite a shy child. I was an only child as well. And at this point, um, I did have cousins that I later on went to spend a lot of time with, but they were younger than me. So suddenly going from a home environment where I'd spend a lot of time being the early child to being in a group experience um, was quite overwhelming. But I had the most wonderful reception teacher. She was called Mrs. Kennedy. And the thing that I still remember about her now was the way she just got to know me. She built up her relationships and she just filled our day with that magic of, of play and just the way she created her um, learning moment. She infused us all. And I remember um, not really liking having to drink school milk. And she didn't, she never forced me and she never sort of put me on the spot to drink it. But instead she was very gentle and very nurturing in the way that she encouraged me to approach it and try new things. So I, I love Mrs. Kennedy to bits and she inspired me. And then I think naturally as a child, all of my imaginative and role play came from my school experiences and I would pretend to be Mrs. Kennedy. And then when my cousins were old enough and we'd look after them in their holidays, I would then be a teacher with my cousins being the students and I would plan exciting things for us to do. Um, alongside that, I also got fascinated in um, the story of Matilda. I think I would watch the film every weekend and I love Miss Honey. I thought she was so lovely. And from a very early age, I felt inspired to be a teacher and to be like Mrs. Kennedy and Miss Honey. And <clears throat> from my own experiences going through primary school and high school, um, you know, there were certain teachers and educators that I just didn't gel with or being a shy child, they'd like put you on the spot or just make you feel a little bit embarrassed or humiliated about things. Um, I remember being in year three at primary school and I was always the kind of child that wouldn't put my hand up to answer a question. So um, I would just sort of sit at the back and hope that everybody else would just answer for me. Even though I often knew the answer, I just didn't want to be center of attention. And I remember this one particular teacher that I had in year three was just like, right, Kimberly, it's your turn. You need to answer a question. It's no good just sitting there. I want to know what you think. And that was just horrible. It was so awful. I can remember it clearly now. And I just thought, right, when I'm a teacher, I will never be like that. 
Um, so fast forward a few years, I told you this would be a long story. Fast forward a few years, um, when I was 16, still knew that I wanted to work in education. So I decided to do some work experience in my local primary school in the foundation stage. I also gave up during my time in sixth form, some of my free periods and um, went in and volunteered my time again at the local primary school. Really enjoyed it, loved it. Um, at the same time, I did apply to go to university. I was offered a play. The school that I was working at also offered me um, a job for a year, a year's job, working in the foundation stage, supporting children with complex learning needs. And this really excited me. As I said, it was a really lovely school to be in and I felt I could learn lots. And I also thought it would be a great experience to do um, before I started university, have a little bit of life experience behind me as well. So that's what I did. Um, I deferred my place. I spent a year working um, as a special needs teaching assistant in the foundation stage unit. Found it very rewarding. Um, and then I went to university the year after, did a four year undergraduate degree specialising in early education. And about halfway through my degree, I became really, really interested in high quality interactions and how we can use high quality interactions to move learning on. And yeah, being the kind of person that I am, I would enjoy reading up on it and trying to have this hunger to know as much as I could about it and then apply it into my practice. And one day I was reading um, a piece of research by John Siraj Blatchford, Professor John. And this piece of research was really inspiring. And I thought, you know what, I would love to be part of this. It's probably not possible, but I decided to send John an email. And it was one of those times, and I still do this now, I have to close my eyes after composing an email to somebody um, that's you know, big and important and press send and just speak, oh. But I did, I sent an email to John and I just said, I'm so inspired by your work, you know, I'm training to be a teacher and I would love to um, extend my knowledge further and if there's any opportunities to work with you or, be part of your research in any way I'd love to be. Anyway, maybe a week went by, never expected a reply and then suddenly there in my inbox was an email from John inviting me to work with him. And so I did a little dance around the room, got very, very excited and we began our partnership. We began collaborating together on research, major, major research, um, international research, looking at what contributes towards high quality early education and in particular interactions and sustained shared thinking. So um, I was able to start contributing my research into this big body of knowledge. Um, we were able to write about it in journal magazine, journals, magazines, um, and talk about it at conferences and events. So that's how I sort of developed a love for research-informed practice. Um, and then I, I graduated, I got my first teaching position, loved it, still did lots of work with John sort of in the background, which was great. And then I found myself working in a few different schools and settings, developing my knowledge, often the schools and settings I found myself in 
had something challenging that happened. So one particular setting I worked in, the roof fell down. The whole of our provision was um, destroyed. It was flooded. We had to go learn in um, a church hall. And part of the excitement of that journey was to rebuild our provision and make sure it was really purposeful. And I've also worked in schools where they've been judged to be inadequate and after a couple of years of working there, we've moved them to be outstanding. So I was able to work with some really brilliant practitioners, some wonderful mentors, and I started to collect these stories of how we could move provision forward, um, or how we can move our practice forward, sorry. And at the time, whenever I was in this um, particular situation, I found that I was having to do a lot of self-research or try things out, never knowing if it was quite right or very much trial and error. But then I found myself learning new things as a result of it. And when I was in these positions, I often found that to go on courses or to work with an early years consultant, it would cost hundreds and hundreds of pounds and we just never had that in our budget as a school or setting. So it really was a lot of self-study. Um, so then I had the opportunity to start working with some of the local authorities in my area, working as a leading teacher, speaking at more conferences about the work and the journeys that I'd been on, sharing practice. And then that developed further. I got to go into schools and settings and work with them directly, doing lots of quality improvement work, um, still writing lots in magazines, um, and finding myself almost going up that leadership scale as well. But then thinking actually being a leader of a whole primary school isn't really what I want to do because my passion is in early education. So then it was learning to take a step back from that, gaining more inspiration from my travels around Scandinavia as well and juggling the best ways to work with um, self-care and looking after yourself and being more present. So, yeah, an awful lot of stuff has inspired me and motivated me. And now in the work that I do, I feel like I'm constantly learning, constantly meeting new clients, new settings. I get to travel around the world as well, taking part in different conferences or seeing high quality practice going on. And it challenges my thinking and it makes me reflect on, on my vision and my ethos and it gives me things to offer to you as well when I'm working with you. So yeah, I'm constantly learning. And even with our online partnerships that we have and making sure I'm taking the time each week to look at your amazing accounts and be inspired by the types of practice you're doing. Um, yeah, I just feel like there's so much motivation out there. So yeah, for me, that's a little bit about my journey. And as I said, I discovered Huga um, during my travels around Scandinavia when I felt my well-being wasn't so good. And I saw what they were doing in Norway, in Denmark, Finland, and I just thought I could learn a lot from this and start to apply it into my own personal life and then my professional life. So that's what I did. So for the next part of our Q&A, I want to talk about Huga now. Um, so Huga is a way of living. 
It's not something that can be directly translated into English. It's very much about a feeling that you get. And it's very individual for each person. So something that is so simple but brings me great joy isn't necessarily going to bring you the same level of joy. Um, you know, one of the things that I like to do is after a busy day of work, when it's cold outside, I like to come in, make myself a cup of tea, put my dressing gown on over the top of my clothes, because it's all warm and snuggly, and just have maybe five to 10 minutes of quiet reflection time. And for me, that is like an ultimate hygge moment. Um, it just is simple, but it makes me feel safe, secure and good. Um, and I think it's important that when you're thinking about hygge and you're trying to achieve it in your setting or home or school, that you learn to recognise what hygge is for you because it will be different. For some people, it's having that time to go out on their horse each day and go galloping through the fields. For some people, it's as simple as lighting a candle when they're eating their evening meal. For others, it's that feeling of togetherness when they come together with their family at the end of the day and share their daily news. So you have to spend time reflecting on yourself and thinking about what Hugo is for you before you can start working on how it's going to fit into your practice. And that's what the Hugo accreditation is all about, really. It's about spending that time working on yourself applying your own oxygen mask first before you can then help somebody else. Um, so very quickly, I'm going to answer a couple of questions that came in. So one of them was from Small World Secrets and it was about what plants can I pop into my nursery environment that are safe to have? Um, so things like ferns, spider plants, herbs, getting children to grow their own um, food as well from seeds. So things like cress are great to include. One of the other questions that's come in today is from Mrs. McDonald. And she says that she's working in year two next year. And she would love to know how she can bring Huga into her year two classroom. So for me, you can start thinking about your lighting to start with. So as Peter Kay would say, the comedian, turn your big lights off and pop some lamps around you at your um, provision. Lamps of different heights, giving out different um, kinds of softness as well. Um, having twinkly lights and putting these maybe around one of your um, displays to again bring that softness in. Um, thinking about developing some cosy reading nooks and um, adding in some lovely different textured throws and cushions. Again, put your twinkly lights in there, maybe make it more of a den so it's enclosed and children can get in there and it can be cosy. Trying to bring in a sense of nature too, so adding in uh, your plants, trying to bring in more natural artifacts that will inspire um, some of the work that's going on in your setting too, like in your painting area, for instance. Um, and then lastly, creating a sense of belonging. So we are with Hugo trying to think about that home from home approach. So what can you add into your classroom that's going to give that feeling of belonging? I like to have um, like homely decorations in my provision, um, photographs of the children and their families in photograph frames dotted around, having vases that you might have in your home filled with interesting natural artifacts. Um, 
you know, having LED candles as well. Um, so it's just looking around your own home, I'd say, for some inspiration and then thinking about how you can add this in. And then for more sense of belonging, thinking about how the children store their work, how you display children's work. Does each child have a space and setting um, where their work can be up on display? Do you display children's work instantly? Um, are children part of the provision because they're writing the signs and the labels for the resources or the role play areas or things like that? Okay, next question. Next question has come in from the lovely Beth, who I got to meet earlier this week at my Hugo Live event in Leeds. And Beth's question is, how can she inspire her team to understand and pop into their practice um, the importance of open-ended play and play-based learning? So this is a great question to come in. And this is something that I've had to work with as well with, with previous teams that I've been part of in the past. So what I found to work really successfully is to feel like you are the expert in this as a leader yourself. So you need to have that hunger to know all about play-based learning, why it's beneficial, how you can implement it and great resources to support it. If you feel like you've got gaps in your knowledge as a leader, then you need to try and fill these. Because when you introduce something new to your team, you're naturally going to come up against barriers or questions from them about how or why it might not work. So you need to be, be oh, need to be, be, need to be as prepared as possible with your responses. And you need to feel confident in the way you explain these and work with these um, when discussing it with your team. So yeah, make sure your first step is to invest in your own knowledge and be secure in this. Then start gradually introducing the idea to your team. Um, remember that when you're moving from such a formal approach to more of a child-led or play-based approach, it needs to be a slow and gradual process because it's going to take time. And yeah, there will be speed bumps along the way. So don't think it's going to happen overnight. Okay, so when I'm implementing it as a leader, I'm very much in the provision, modeling it to my team, watch, standing back, presenting children with resources, standing back, and then talking to my team about what they see happening, what learning is happening there. Um, so for instance, I had my construction area and I added some sticks of different sizes and lengths and thicknesses into the construction area. Now, my team at the time were a little bit unsure about this. They weren't sure how the children would use them, how it contributed to the learning that was going on. So I just encouraged them to stand back and watch and see how the children use them. So that's what we did. And the children were amazing as they were making airplanes using them alongside their block play. They were making farms and using the sticks as a way of creating the different enclosures and fields that the animals were in and combining the sticks with their loose parts. Um, sorry, not loose parts, their block play and their small world. And 
as this was happening, I would just take members of my team and say, oh, look, can you see the way Cheryl is doing this? Can you see the way that this is happening? Wow, look at that creativity there. So that I was sort of sounding it out and making it explicit to my team members. Um, each day we would meet as a team before work. This was when I was working in a nursery class and we started at 10 to 9. And we'd spend five minutes just talking about the learning from the prior day, um, talking about how we'd enhance the environment so that it supported those um, emerging interests, for example. And then during my weekly or, um, I don't know, monthly staff meetings with my team, I would show videos of our children using resources and we'd reflect on the practice together. So often when you go on training events, you're watching children that are in a completely different environment to you. And it can be very hard to think, well, how's that going to work for me or for us? So when you're working with your team, use videos and photos and examples from your environment and then the team can see how it works. And yeah, lastly, you need to be excited by it because if you're not, then the team are not going to be. If you're approaching it and you're like, oh, I feel like we should go with child-led learning because all the other settings around here are doing it and it's a bit of a trend at the moment, but I'm not sure it's going to be for us, then you're already falling at that first hurdle. So you're the expert, approach it with enthusiasm and off you go. And I hope it goes well. Okay, next question. So Buttercup's Childminding, you got in touch to ask me a question about work-life balance. Saying that you often feel as though you're doing your paperwork late at night or squeezing it into a quieter moment of your day. And what top tips did I have for this? So I think one of the first things we have to look at here is your mindset. Your mindset that your to-do list will always have things on it and there'll always be jobs that you should be doing, there'll always be things that are never complete. And there's a great quote here by Matt Haig, author of Notes on the Nervous Planet, and he sums this up brilliantly, um, you know, saying things like you'll never have enough followers on um, social media, there'll always be the ironing to do or the washing up, there's always something that you can be working on if you let it. And the same goes with our to-do list for our work that we're doing in early education. We need to really stand back and prioritise what it is we're doing and thinking about what it is we want to achieve. Otherwise, we could easily just fill our days with stuff. And often when we do this, we're not actually moving any further forward than we were the day before. So one of the things I always encourage the people that I'm working with to consider is ask yourself this, is the work that you're doing having an impact on the children? Is the work you're doing having an impact on the children? Because I bet if you look at all the jobs you've done in that day, very little have actually had an impact on your children. I used to find that, you know, I'd be, um, as I've said many times before, I would be spending my lunch times with the laminator, creating a number display that I would put up in my provision. Now, did the children ever really use those numbers? No. 
did they use a display that they had made themselves, where we had used a Polaroid camera to take photographs of groups of objects and make our own physical number line? Yes, that was used all the time because it was relevant and purposeful. But doing laminated resources wasn't used and it wasn't a great use of my time. The same can be said for planning. So if you're still very much planning from themes or topics, and these are very rigid and you're finding yourself on a Sunday afternoon doing reams and reams of planning, then you need to just stop and think, right, will this actually happen by the time we get to Wednesday? Or am I wasting an hour of my life doing planning that we will never ever get to? Um, this is why I moved towards child-centered planning and recording this down in um, a way of documentation. So you'll have heard me talk about this before, but I wonder, I know, I found out. See previous videos if you need support with that bit. Um, and also, um, I did a daily plan. So every day I would write up a retrospective account of what we'd done that day. So if I'd had team members away off poorly, I would write that on and say, we didn't do this adult input today with this particular group because this happened, but instead we came together or we found a spider outside and this um, encouraged us to learn about spiders more. And um, so it was, more of a true account as to what we had done and it was relevant and I think sometimes we forget about the children don't we so yeah have a think about how you're making your documentation relevant for the children how you're making their thought process relevant um, visible and how you're um saving time because you're going with that child interest instead of using your time to do lots of forward planning and when you move to a child-centered approach, what you'll find is you actually get some of your time back. And that time can be used in resourcing or setting up beautiful provocations that will extend and deepen the learning. So I hope that helps. What I will do is I will show you next a copy of a daily write-up, a daily plan that I used to use. Okay, so thank you so much for all of your questions that have come in this week. It's been great thinking about them and hopefully you've got some good ideas now about how you can uh, move forward in what you're doing. So thank you to all of you that contributed and asked and uh, yeah, I'm going to be back again next week with some more for you. Okay. <laughs>